Now I want to start the, the sermon today because it's the last of, the, of, of this Look Again series and I wanted to start it uh, in somewhat of a different way. Actually, I had a sermon planned and then I felt like the Lord said, no, I want to start this sermon this time with a meditation. And so I said, absolutely. Seeing as you're the Lord and I'm here to serve you, I'll do what you say, you know. That's, let's be clear on that. That's very clear. So um, I'm going to start with a meditation because I started to, to work out the sermon on the goodness of God and then I came across the scripture, taste and see that the Lord is good in Psalm 34. And uh, I just felt like the Lord said, well, just take some time to meditate on that just a little bit. <clears throat> so I know this is somewhat strange and this is probably not how most people start their sermons, but I want to, uh, want to invite you to maybe kick back, close your eyes if you dare and just listen. And if you want to keep your eyes open, just a little phrase will come up on the screen as we just go through this. But I wanted to take a little moment because here's the point. We don't need another message about how good and how rich the food on the table is. We need you to step up and start eating, right? We don't need another theory. We need you to taste and see. And I felt like the Lord said, hey, why don't you, why don't you invite people and let's just do this. We'll just, we'll just drink in. We, we do this all around the world. This is, this is astounding. You, you, the beauty of the power of the Word of God to impact people's lives is phenomenal. And so I'm just going to see that again. So let me read to you the piece and then we're going to get into it phrase by phrase. David wrote this, by the way. He said, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him and he saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste, see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Won't you just let the word of God revolve in your heart and mind as you just listen. David said, those who look to him. There are different types of looks. There's a look of hope. There's a look of expectation. There's this expecting good. There's a knowing look. I know who you are. There's a believing look. David said, those who look to him, those who turn their focus and their attention, despite the situation, despite the day, they look to him. How have you been looking? When last did you turn around and just look for the Lord? How can you look for him in this coming week? Those who look, those who look, David said, Those who look to him are radiant. There's something about his face that'll melt away shame and failure and disgrace. There's something in his gaze that sets us free from our fears and our failures. Would you dare to look right now? Those who look to him are radiant. Because the beauty and the glory that's in his face begins to shine on our faces and we radiate what he's put in there. This is the beauty that's in the face of Jesus. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces, David said, are never covered with shame. 
Apparently, if, we, if you make looking at Jesus a habit, no shame can attach itself to you. Shame cannot stay. Because he never shames anyone. And 2 Corinthians 2 says, there is the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Everything beautiful, everything magnificent, everything kind and wonderful about God, you can find it as you look in the face of Jesus. Would you dare to focus on him today? So here we are, Lord, turning our attention to you in this place, face to face with Almighty God. What a beautiful thing this is. Because you said, Lord, that our faces would never be covered with shame. And then David said, this poor man called. There's no shame in identifying how I feel. David said, I'm a poor man calling out. Now that you're face to face with God, would you dare just call out? What is it that you want to call out to him? This poor man called. Can you see he's listening? What's the expression on his face? This poor man called and the Lord heard him. You see him smile when he hears you cry. What did he do? He reached out a hand. Did he throw his arm around you? Did he laugh out loud, slap a knee? What did he do? This poor man called and he heard me. And David said, and he saved him out of all his troubles, out of all your troubles, right there when you called, he just laughed out loud and he set in motion a process that's gonna deliver you out of every single trouble. And although you may not yet see all the troubles disappeared, you know that something started right there. And it's time to say thank you. Thank you before you see it. Thank you, Lord, in faith. I thank you, Father, that you, you have taken hold of the circumstances of trouble. What are you going to do when all of these troubles are broken and behind you? And all you see is his smiling face. Well, I'm going to thank him. I'm going to bless him. I'm going to worship him. Because he saves us out of all our troubles. And David went on and he said, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. When you've decided, Jesus, you can be Lord of my life, he took that seriously. When you decided he's gonna be first and you listen to his voice and you're careful to honor him, what happens is he sends his angels to surround you. They encamp they make their home around you and they watch over you. 
Because David said, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And he delivers them. He surrounded you with angels. He's covered you with his smile. And he will deliver you out of the mud, out of the mire, out of any threat, out of any danger, out of any enemy's hand, out of any scoffer, out of any circumstance. And he delivered them. So we turn our faces, Lord, again to you. We give our hearts to honor you. We respect and fear you. We give you the highest place, Lord, and revere you as God Almighty. David went on. He said, taste and see that the Lord is good. What a great invitation. Come, draw yourself near. Drink deep. Help yourself. Taste and see for yourself. Not in some academic way. Come and experience. Drink deep. Eat. This is an invitation to an experiential knowledge of the goodness of God. He means for you to know it. Taste and see. Taste and see. The Lord is good. Not some flimsy or temporary state that God sometimes hits. This is Him. This is who He is. He cannot change. Draw near any time to taste of His goodness. Blessed. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. There are some people who find refuge in Jesus and he's become our safe place, our hiding place from pressures and fears and enemies. What a safe place he is. What a refuge. What a comfort. Because the Bible says that those who choose to make him their refuge, they get blessed. And some other people, when their times are tough and dark days come, they run to strong allies or some run to their wealth because they think it's an unscalable wall and some run to friends or family. And It's only those who run to Jesus who take refuge in Him who are blessed. So Lord, here we come asking for refuge asking to taste of the Lord's goodness. I want to thank you, Lord, that you heard our cry. And I thank you for this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in a sermon entitled, Let's Look Again at God's Goodness. The sermon series was started because I came to the understanding, had a little inkling in the back of my spirit that uh, th there's a beauty to God that I've, I've missed and somehow that my whole life, my theology, other people's theology, the enemy's lies has, has brought a picture to my mind about who God is that I guarantee you He's so much bigger than. 
And, and the invitation is not, is, is not to start relating to the God that we've minimized in our minds, but to look for the God who's magnificent and amazing. And God is infinitely good, and he will not change. The fundamental doctrine of, of our theology is that God is immutable, which means he cannot change. He's not susceptible to change. If he changed, he would be diminished because he, has, he is perfectly good. So any change is bad in God. Any change in me is good. But any change in God is bad because he is perfectly beautiful and he cannot change, must not change. And so that's why God says, I am the Lord. I do not change. And we should all say praise God for that beauty because he's so dependable because he won't change, because he won't lie, because he's always the same. Jesus Christ has committed himself to be the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Bible says. Does not change. Always consistent. You can always come. You can always receive. He is always the same. Perfectly good. And there are no limits or boundaries to his goodness. Imagine if he had a character flaw or was prone to outbursts of anger. He just flew off the handle and then just got capricious. He has all authority. No one can resist him. He has all power. He has all knowledge. If he knows all things and he can do all things and he can be anywhere and he lives forever, you can't, you can't unthink him. You can't outlast him. Imagine if that was all true and he was evil in some way. We'd be in trouble. But he's not evil. He's perfectly good in every single way. Brilliantly good. Now, that fact that God is like that and, and the details of my life, the details of my life, the facts of my life, the things that I go through all conspire together to present a picture of who God is that is not perfectly good. I go through tough times. I go through bad situations. I, I, I fight some things. And all of those things come into our lives and they either conspire with us to, to present a picture of a God who is sometimes good, sometimes mean, sometimes downright evil. Sometimes faithful, sometimes unfaithful, and half the time disinterested. That's the picture the world and the enemy wants to create in our minds. But the truth is out here, but the facts of our life try to lie to us about a picture that is simply not true. And so we have to come and look again past the facts of my life, past the current details I'm facing, past the pressures and the cares and the concerns, and say, God, would you show me again? And he goes, anytime, come and taste and see. Come, taste and see. And that's the invitation this morning. Because I got pain and disappointments and dashed hopes and unmet expectations and violent questions and inner accusations and festering bitterness and all of that stuff that if I'm not careful, they'll all just wander around and create a picture of God. But for those who believe and know God, he shows up in his splendor and he walks into the details of our life and he loves us and he lets us see who he is. And even though we're walking still in the mud and the mire and sometimes under the pressures, if you walk with God and his beauty overwhelms you, you become awestruck with him and life is full of beauty. 
The basic idea is that many people who don't know God like that, if you, if you just look at their lives, they lean a little bit back from God because they're not sure He's good. And the people who are sure He's good, they come running to Him. The people who are not sure go running away from Him. It's, it's fundamental. It's pivotal. It's a watershed in your spiritual walk. What you think about God it manifests very quickly. See, David had settled this thing, because David wrote that song. David had settled in his heart, God is good. He had, he, he had, he, somehow he got it in his spirit. He goes, God is good. And so David comes running to God every chance he gets. Why? Because fundamentally, in his gut, he knows God is good. And when it comes time for judgment to come, David was foolish and he's deserving of punishment. And God comes to him and says, I'll give you three options. Uh, you, you know, two of those options, are, you know, you can, I'll give you three years of you know, dealing with some enemies and, and three weeks of, three months of handling with these people and then, and then three days of my, my judgment. He goes, I'll take your judgment any day. Don't put me in the hands of men. So I'll take your judgment because with you, there's forgiveness. You're, you're kind. He goes, no, 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 I trust you. I'll, I'll take whatever, I, I know I deserve judgment, but I'm taking it from you. He says, because I know who you are. And it's David who wrote, surely his goodness and his loving kindness are gonna follow me everywhere I go, all the days of my life. See, once you get that in your spirit, it changes everything. It's a watershed. And from that time, you flow into every direction. You run towards God, not away from him. So taste and see that the Lord is good, David wrote. Blessed is the one who trusts in him. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about God, what comes into your mind when somebody says God, that's the most important thing about you. Spurgeon said the way that you taste and see is you engage your faith. You taste by faith. You have to reach out and say, Lord, what are you saying to me? Because if you'll reach out by faith, you'll be blessed. One Peter, and when Peter's talking about this, Peter talks to this, this same idea as a foundation stone. He goes, listen, like a, he says, crave pure spiritual milk so that uh, you can grow up in your salvation. He's talking to people who just got saved. And he goes, he says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it, you can grow up in your salvation, comma, now that you have tasted the Lord is good. Foundation stone. Peter says, listen, once you've hit this foundation stone, once you've met Jesus, once his beauty and his goodness and his grace have impacted your life, now that you've tasted his good, now, now let's grow you up. But you can't grow up if you don't have this foundation stone. And I've met some people in their Christian walk who've been taught that this foundation stone has not been, it's been taken away. They've been taught God, God is actually mean and He's gonna decide when God has decided that you are an ugly thing and you need to be whipped into shape. So He's gonna send suffering to you. And God's gonna make you suffer, you ugly thing. And it's good for you. And you should like it. Now, Suffering is gonna come because it's part of life. But God doesn't look at it like that. God goes, oh yeah, I'll help you. I'll walk with you. Come here, hold my hand. Let's go through it together. He gives you strength. He gives you guidance. He gives you wisdom every step of the way. And if it becomes too much for you, he'll just squash it. Say, no, enough. 
It's okay. You have to settle in your heart that this is a foundation stone for my life. It's a pivotal place for my faith. John Gill said, he is essentially, infinitely, perfectly, immutably, and solely good in himself, and he is communicatively and diffusively good to others. He is the author of all good. So let's establish that in our spirits. He is good. There's this great story where this guy comes to Jesus. He's a very wealthy young guy. And he comes to Jesus because he wants to be right with God and he's heard that there's this guy in town and they're calling him a prophet teacher and he's doing miracles. And so he's, he's enamored with this and he stands in the crowd and he watches people get healed and he's, he's intrigued. So he comes to Jesus and he goes, uh, <clears throat> good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It's a fascinating thing because Jesus basically stops the guy mid-sentence and, and brings up a semantic point of order. Hang on now, you can't call me good because he recognizes this guy doesn't know that I'm God. He doesn't, and he's, he's, a, he's saying good, and, but he doesn't believe. So basically Jesus is saying, it's time to you to dance or play the fiddle. You know, you have to choose something now. You have to fish or cut bait. Either, either I'm good, which means I'm God, or I'm not Make up your mind. But he won't let the guy pass. He won't let the guy throw in a little compliment like he's, like he's pretending, like, like the guy's going, oh, well, he's a little bit silly and delusional, but he's impressive nonetheless, so I'm gonna throw him a bone. Jesus says, whoa, whoa. Why are you calling me good? Because we both know that the only one that you can say is absolutely good, that's God. Isn't that nice? That was in Jesus' head. No, no, no. You wanna talk about God? You wanna talk about my dad? Good. That's the adjective for him. So when you say good, I'm going, you're right. I, the father and I are one. He said, but you don't think of it like that. So he just makes a point of order. Jesus jumps on the idea of goodness. He said, no one is good. No one is perfect like that except my father, like God. God, that's God's domain. No one is intrinsically good but God essentially good in all things, wise, powerful, and holy. See, before God began to reveal himself like this through the patriarchs and then through Judaism and then in Christianity, before he revealed himself as this God, most of the gods of all the nations were, were lesser gods. They were mean-spirited. They were capricious. They were spiteful, disinterested, sometimes fickle, selfish, needing appeasement, homage. You paid loyalty for blessing. You, your relationship with those gods was transactional. You did something to earn their favor, and then they gave you their favor. That's how it was. But this God comes in, he's, super, he's way beyond all these other gods. He lives outside of creation. There's nothing that I can do that I can give him that will make him, that'll induce him to respond to me. He responds to us because he loved us, not because we did something. We love because he first loved us. In that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. He sent his own son because he loved. It wasn't our years of religious service that God said, okay, you've done enough, now I'm gonna send my son. In fact, it was, do you guys, you've done so much that you realize you can't get this right, right? Yeah, good. You learned a lesson. 
You can't do it yourself, so I'm sending you a savior. This idea that, that a God that good is moved towards humanity, towards the, that which he created, is an incredible idea. Very different to most of the religions of the world. Now this idea that you and I recognize God's goodness and we taste it personally, and we know it personally to be true, is a vital part of our spiritual walk. It needs to be a bedrock of our theology. And there are grave consequences to missing this piece. Because if, you if you're not absolutely settled in, in your gut, it, you might just bow out. I remember standing with my dead son's body. He had died in the hospital and we, and we were expecting him home. Holding his dead, warm body over my shoulder when I felt like the Lord had promised me that he would live. So I'm, I missed God. Uh, it's been three months of grief. We buried two of our other children already. I'm standing there with my third dead son on my shoulder. I threatened God out of leaving the ministry. I, I remember standing there in that moment, and I don't know how I knew, but in my heart of heart, I knew my God is good. See, that'll save you from stupidity. That'll save you from saying things and doing things that'll just harm you. I don't understand it. I don't like the situation at all, but I know in my gut God is good. I don't know how I can explain that to you. That's what David said. I would have lost heart. The, the Psalm 27, the bottom scripture there. I would have lost heart. I would have given up unless I had believed this thing. I will see God's goodness in the land of the living. Not just when I get to heaven. I will see God's goodness right here, here in this land. And David said, if I didn't have that in my spirit, I would have given up. I would have just said, because David had so much pressure and so many enemies and so many people betraying him, he could have just given up and said, all right, just take me. Take me, Lord. But he goes, I would have, I would have, I would have, I lost my heart. But I had this thing in me. Wouldn't give up. I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord in this land while I'm alive. And I can confidently, with absolute authority, proclaim to everybody in this, within the sound of my voice, you will see God's goodness. You will see God's goodness in your lifetime. Bill Johnson said, everything about God is extreme in the best possible sense. He's infinitely good, he's infinitely holy and powerful, infinitely beautiful, magnificent and glorious. These are just a few terms to describe him, but none of the endless lists of traits and characteristics confine him. Religion, which I define as form without power, tends to attempt the impossible task of restricting him into neat little packages, giving us a false sense of intelligence and ultimately control. <laughs> if you think you have control, you have a small God that is not real. Because this God that we love is infinitely big. And he's bigger and bigger and bigger still. Each virtue gives us a glimpse into that which is beyond measure, but is open for observation. You could take one trait and explore it for all eternity and not come close to exhausting the depths of who he is in that particular virtue. 
He is beyond all description, but not beyond all experience. You can experience what you cannot yet define. Your spirit was born to have encounters with God, to experience God, and then to sit and try and explain it to other people. What happened? And if you've never had one of those, you come to the right place. We're trusting God for more of them. I want, I want you to have some of those. I want you to just be so blown away. Bible says of, of Ezekiel that when the Lord took him up and showed him around and put him down, and he said, I sat there by the exiles of the Kibar River for seven days, overwhelmed. Wasn't sleeping, wasn't talking, wasn't eating. Just sat and watched the river go by for seven days. He said, is he okay? Yeah, he's had an encounter with God. I wish you many. But you can experience something that you can't explain. Come a little closer and taste for yourself. He's a good God and he has good plans for you. I got scriptures like crazy. I'm not even gonna read all of them. Jeremiah 29 is the most well-known one. You probably read this one. It says, this is what the Lord says. When the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to you. They had rebelled. God had said, don't rebel. If you rebel, I'm gonna take you into captivity. They rebelled and rebelled and rebelled. And he kept saying, don't, 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 don't. And they kept doing and doing and doing. And he said, okay, now you're going into captivity. And they're like, God hates us. He goes, no, no, this is the consequence of what I was warning you about for hundreds of years. But then he says, to these rebels, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to you to bring you back to this place for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. This was never my intent, God said. Jeremiah 24, he said, my eyes will watch over you for your good. Jeremiah 32, I will never stop doing good to them and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me and I will rejoice in doing them good. I will rejoice in doing them good. You want to find out what pleases the Lord? He rejoices in doing you good. When did you ever hear that? But that's in the Bible. I don't write that. I will rejoice in doing them good, the Bible says. Thirdly, I want to say that he delights in our expectation of his good. It's not just God who delights in doing you good. God delights it when you expect him to do you good. If you have a kid who comes into you and then every time you come near them, they they duck like you, you, like you beat them regularly. And you've never beaten them. After a while, you go, you have to stop that. That's an inappropriate response to me. And they go, like you're extremely generous with them, but they pretend like you've never been generous in your whole life. You never give me anything. You go, well. And at some stage, at some stage, while you're a baby Christian, that's, that's acceptable. You can respond to God as though, but when you grow up a little, he says, okay, okay, come I have never done wrong to you. I've never not been absolutely good to you, but you treat me as though I'm constantly beating you. And you need to stop it. Sometimes I listen to our prayers. We're like, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. Don't hit me, but I'm going to just throw this under the door. 
I was like, no, no, come, come sit here. Let's talk. Oh, no, no, I, I would never, I would never. That's too impertinent. He goes, hey, come here. Come here. Jesus spent his whole life talking about his father. The father and I one. The father, if you see me, you've seen the father. The father. How should we pray? Our father. Jesus was father, 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 father. Until the time he gets onto the cross and he takes the sins of all the world and the weight of all God's displeasure. And on the cross he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Watch out for people who call God God and don't call him father. People who understand God as Father understand a very different relationship with Him. The people who understand God as a distant God have a judgment relationship with Him. Start calling Him Father and start acting like He's a kind Father. This is, I digress, we're moving on. Psalm 147 verse 10, the speed of a horse is nothing to Him. How puny is in his sight is the strength of, his man, uh, of a man, but his joy. His joy is in those who reverence him and who expect him to be loving and kind. God not only finds joy in proving his goodness to you, but God finds joy when you expect him to be good. That's in the living Bible. God finds joy when you expect him to be loving and kind. You want to please him? Expect him to be loving and kind and good to you. Come to him like you're a good dad. I know who you are. Dad. He loves it when we relate to him like that. He loves our expectation of his goodness. But he's dishonored by our expectation of evil. Just as you would be if your kids expected evil from you when you're giving them no cause. Psalm 78, and I'm closing with this. God had brought his people out. There have been 10 plagues. He's rescued them. He's killed the greatest army in the known world in front of their eyes. He's provided them with water. He's provided them with food. And they're out in the desert, and then they, 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 they're desperate for drink again. And God calls out of a rock water for two and a half million people and all their flocks. And then they go on a few days and they, they, they're grumbling about food. And so they say, ah, okay, 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 we'll give, you, we'll, give you, we'll give you this. When we needed water, you brought water out of a rock. But, but I don't think he's going to be able to feed us. I think God's sort of run out of his patience with us. And this is what the Bible says. When the Lord heard them, he was furious and his fire broke out against Jacob and his wrath rose against Israel. Why? For they did not believe in God or trust for his deliverance. God was ticked with them because their basic expectation was not that he was going to bless them. His wrath rose against them because they didn't believe and they didn't trust. Of course you should believe I'm going to provide for you. Of course you should be trusting me right now. His wrath, he got angry because their expectation was for evil. Or at a minimum, neglect. They expected him to neglect them or to forsake them or to leave them there. God never brought you to this place to leave you here. He never taught you how to swim so you drown now. He never brought you out into this place so you can die in this sand. No, God brought you because he has a dream for you and it's a promised land. I 
dare you to expect good things. You want to please him? Expect him to be loving and kind. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come back. and We're just going to, we're going to worship. And uh, we're going to close this meeting with, that, with a song of worship. And I'm going to dare you to just come to the Lord and go, I'm, I'm just here with my mouth wide open. I want to taste and see. Knowing that God inhabits, when we come together in agreement, we together form a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God will dwell among us. And he's going to do some things here in the meeting. But you have to engage. And I just want to dare you to come to him with a wide open heart and say, Lord, I'm trusting you. You said you're good. I'm believing you're good. And I'm going to ask you. So I'm going to pray, then we're going to worship, and we're going to close the meeting. Let's pray together. If you've never met Jesus and you don't know he's good, you can pray this prayer. You can just say, Lord Jesus, I'm, I need you. And I, I, I know my life is in a mess, and I, I, I just come to you, Lord, and I ask you to forgive me. I, I know I don't deserve it. I know there's nothing I can offer you. But I know I need you. So please wash me clean. Forgive me. Come into my life. I've heard that you're good. Would you prove it to me? In Jesus' name, amen.